This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Aloha, ladies and gentlemen. Jeremy Vaney here, filling in for Whitley Strieber, yet again on Dreamland. Um, so, this is part two of a solo episode, for which you do not have to have seen part one. Um, I thank everyone who has responded to this. Um, sure, there are those who hate watch, which is fun. But for the most part, feedback has been enormously positive and heartening. And by that, I mean, especially the people who say, I kind of understand what you're saying, but I kind of don't, but I'm willing to hear it out. Or there's something about it that kind of rings true, even though I don't quite get everything you're saying. I love that. Um, so I will try to articulate something that is uh, big and broad in a relatively short amount of time here. Um, and I, I guess just if you missed the last episode, I made the bold brash claim that there is no such thing as an alien. And of course there were people who just read the title and then pontificated and based on that or went off about how how dare I? I'm so wrong and arrogant and narcissistic and blah. But uh, if you'd actually watched the episode, uh, that might have helped, <laughs> I guess. Um, but I'll just say in brief here, the reason we think that there are aliens um, is because we have this separate self-sense, this self-identity divorced from one another. We don't we're not in touch with our interconnecting nature generally. Nature cultures are. Westernized people are not. Um, other peoples, <laughs> whoever essentially lives in a giant society, probably not. In an empire, in Russia, China, whatever it is. Um, you know, because I say westernized and then people are like, you know, want to jump on me about, oh, westernization, other people do it too. Other people do it too, but let's look at you. Let's look at what we know. You're not these other people. You're you. So um, the point is the globe is essentially run and ruined by this self-sense that isn't wholly who we are. It's this partial, divorced, um, I would say sick sense of self that has become in love with its illness. And so we call all of that illness stuff human nature. We just go, oh, it's human nature. And then we do art and movies and poems and all this stuff, telling ourselves, you know, we'll be good next time. <laughs> we have ideals and saviors and stuff that we put on pedestals outside of us. We'll get there-ish. We'll be like that, but we're never going to actually be that. Well, that's wrong. Uh, and I know that that's wrong not from book learning, not from reading, not from a whole bunch of study. You probably have studied things that are called spiritual more than I have. Um, you probably not studied UFOs and aliens stuff more than I have, because I'm probably right there with you. We're probably on par. Um, but as far as mysticism and all that religious stuff, yeah, you've read more than I have, for sure, if you've read anything at all, because <laughs> I've read a handful of books. Um, so what I'm talking about is from first-hand experience. And what I know firsthand is that we ain't what we think we are. 
and that the properly contextualized human being, when they're living their healthy, holist life, um, isn't brain in charge, isn't the objective, logical, I need data, 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 I'm a robot, observer, observed person. It's interconnecting heart. It's heart person. Who then uses brain as a tool? Not tool. The brain as a you know doesn't really use the heart as a tool, except as a to manipulate people. <laughs> uh, the brain essentially like blocks out heart as much as possible because it's a dysfunction. That's a dysfunctional inward um, dynamic that we have going on. We're not organized. We're disorganized inside. And so what I'm talking about is the organized, the properly, rightly organized human being um, does not look like what we look like, does not produce the world that we have produced, does not sit on the edge of its own sword and go, hmm, I wonder if we're sitting on the edge of our own sword. How can I make money off this? Um, no. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there? In the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us? In you? Unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com. There's no place like it in the world. My new book, Jesus A New Vision, is not a Christian book. It is not an anti-Christian book either. Very much not an anti-Christian book. It is new genuinely new, a look at Jesus in his life and what happened afterwards, his resurrection, for the Shroud of Turin is no medieval forgery. It goes all the way back and it does record an extraordinary event that appears to have been a body transforming into a form of coherent light. The science is very strong at this point. And yet, how could that be? What an extraordinary mystery. The life of Jesus is mysterious indeed. But the greater part of the mystery is about us. How is it that a human body could transform in that way? Who accomplished it? Why did it happen? What does it mean to you and me about our lives now? Jesus, a new vision, a new window into a very old way of looking at the truth. A way of finding ourselves, perhaps, that we lost a long time ago, but can recover. Jesus and New Vision is available in Kindle format, as a paperback, 
in audiobook format on Audible and Apple and as a Kindle and paperback on Amazon. Do go and get it today. So any being coming here, even if they were from another planet, wouldn't be alien. They wouldn't look like that. You know, presumably they would be advanced. We want that to mean scientifically advanced, but what it really advanced means is they would be their own whole expression of themselves. And I audaciously say, or else their planet would not let them go because the planet is alive. <laughs> we are the sentience of this planet. Um, and so why would Earth allow us to go out as we are, like we want to go to Mars, we want to go to all these places, um, that ain't going to happen because we're sick. And so what sick heals or dies? These are the consequences. It's not a judgment. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, <laughs> but, but that's it. So And so it would be with other planets because um, although they would not be like us in the sense of uh, how we live day to day, I do believe consciousness does have a cap in the sense that there is the universal oneness-y thing, right? And so uh, anyone who is seriously going to be visiting anywhere is going to be of that mind. They're not going to want to meet our president. They're not gonna, I don't care what David Grush has said. <laughs> They're not going to crash here on purpose or by accident or pollute and then like form deals with our government like that's just not that's not a thing and even if they're time travelers you know the the assumption is is that what they're just like us but they've got you know some other handle on physics um it just doesn't hold uh in terms of our own health and as i said in the last episode what as i demonstrated giving examples from my own life i could have used a lot of things but i use my own life because i like to you know be the victim of my own examples. Uh, it doesn't even make sense in terms of our relationship with, if you want to call it that, with these entities or with this intelligence. Like, it, it's personal. And uh, we see that over and over again. And I said this to someone, um, on one of the subscribers in an unknown country, um, and I think it bears repeating, which is, you know, us, you know, we who are in ufology like to say to the rest of the world who say, ah, UFOs, that's garbage. And we say, well, but if just one of them, because they say like, oh, 80 or 90% of them are explainable, right? Let's say 90, 90, 90 of them are explainable. Uh, 90% of them are explainable. Um, therefore let's ignore it because they're probably all explainable. They're just waiting to be explained. And then you would naturally come back with, well, if just one of them is a non-human craft, that's it, game over, right? Um, if just one example of an object breaking what we consider to be the laws of physics exists, then our sense of physics, our so-called laws, are not laws, right? We say that. That, that. You've heard that a million times. You've probably used it as a defense in conversation. And what I'm saying is that is correct. Now let's see that this also applies to how we 
do look at the phenomenon. So I use the example that Whitley has used of himself, I think, in the thread. Um, he, he, he had said on Weaponized, that show Weaponized, uh, Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp, where he had said um, he wanted these beings, the visitors, to show up for Anne Streber, his wife. And so he asked them to, and they showed up while they were in a hot tub outdoors. They showed up overhead. First, it was this sort of mechanical sound, this sort of annoying mechanical sound. And then they look up and they see, hovering over them, uh, a group of logs bound together by Christmas lights. And that reminds me of me old broadcast partner, rest his soul, Jeff Ritzman, um, was not just an experiencer. He was also um, a ufologist at one point early on. And so he would investigate cases. And the ones that he found to be the most realistic were the most outlandish. Like there was somebody he'd said who saw an upside down uh, Starship Enterprise. There was another person who saw, I think it was like an 18-wheeler, like a Mack truck in the sky. And... He said these people were honest, you know, like they saw this. Clearly, it freaked them out. They know it sounds stupid. They, you know, who are they going to tell? And so my question to you then, getting back to the question of if just one of these things, well, if just one of these events is highly strange like that and personalized to the person, then how many, you know, if just one, then is it aliens? coming and doing cold contact handshake deals with the government things, right? Like that doesn't make sense. You have to give it up. Eventually you have to give up the narrative that you have in mind because the narrative you have in mind is based on the known. And we're talking about the unknown. I would argue we're talking about ultimately the unknowable, um, which isn't to say we can't talk about any of it. We can't articulate it, but it is to say that to engage this intelligence as equals, we have to come from a completely other stage of mind. Uh, the bird has to peck its way out of the shell on this one. We can't just sit in the shell and hook up an HDTV and have a library of books and go, look, I'm learning things, I'm watching things, um, I'm alive. <laughs> no, no, you, you, you know... Like, the outside of the egg can't be a hypothetical. It can't just be something that you pontificate on forever. Because that's not actually a mystery. That's not the mystery. Um, you can be that. In fact, you're supposed to. You're supposed to fly. You're not supposed to set up flight as an ideal um, or give it to some sort of holy uh, visage, a god, um, a savior, an angel, a demon, or whatever, like an alien. Um, that's not in this metaphor. <laughs> That's not for, um, for an idealized uh, idol. That's what we're to be if we're to be our whole selves. So unfortunately, no amount of telling you this cracks the egg in a way where you live. Because just like a bird, let's stick with the analogy because it kind of works. Like, you can't open a bird egg, or you shouldn't. The bird, if it's to live, it's building up its muscle and its resistance and all that by pecking its way out of the shell. Uh, so you can't do it for it. You can only point to that there is the outside and it needs to do it. That's all you can do. 
So aliens coming and having a sit-down chat with us about it won't do it even. Me talking to you about it won't do it even. But we need to talk about it um, so that you know that it's a reality because we've so given in to the illusions we've put up in our shell <laughs> uh, that we think they mean something and we become protective of the shell, ironically. Uh, and so when a guy like me comes along who... Um, especially if I'm younger than you, but definitely if you're more well-read than I am on these subjects, um, you get defensive because who the hell am I, right? Except that what we're going to talk about doesn't involve book learning, isn't about learning at all. I know we've set up life as though, isn't life about learning? Isn't everything about learning and evolving? And no, it is not. There are certain things, most things, for which that's good and necessary and correct. This so-called spiritual non-dual timelessness is not one of them. And that's what we're going to be getting into. And I'm going to try to parse out for you what is my own experience of it versus what is my hypothesis about the intelligence. And all of these things are, are you see how they all go together? Like this idea that we can't, oh, you're just trying to make this spiritual. It's like, no, what I'm trying to point out is that who you are is not the whole picture of who you are. It's this unhealthy, partial creature <laughs> who has said, ah, this is it. And therefore, I expect anyone who comes from another realm to be like this, to be relatable in this way, um, but just have some better technology or something. Like, that's the way in which we can envision that we're different, is if they're better at something than we are. And we can just learn that. <laughs> but, oh, that ain't how this works. So, okay. And it doesn't work that way. And you know that way because, you know that because of the example I just gave of Whitley Strieber with the thing hovering over with the logs and the upside down, <laughs> the upside down enterprise, you know. You go down the list of experiencers who have had experiences and there's always either something blatantly in your face, not right about it, or something subtly not right about it. Um, I think always. I would be hard pressed to find something that isn't that way. Um, I'm sure there's something that exists out there that isn't that way that you can point to, but again, how many can you point to? that are the examples I'm talking about where you have to admit the surface narrative is just that, a surface narrative, is a mask hiding something deeper and broader and more uh, interconnecting with us, period, than cold aliens who are just visiting here. Okay, so um, let's rewind. Who am I in this? to be talking about this in the first place. Well, first, I'm an experiencer. I used to believe I might be an alien abductee or visitors or whatever, um, but that didn't hold, didn't, I mean, obviously there's another intelligence involved. Um, so for those who think that I'm saying that this is all one intelligence, I mean, yeah, in the general sense that everything is one, but I'm not saying that they are merely some Re inward reflection of us or something like that. No, I'm saying they're autonomous, but, but we're conjoined. And here's where we're going. First, 
I'm an experiencer. Then I do some work <laughs> on myself that essentially um, whittles me down. Uh, okay. This is difficult because I don't know how much we want to talk about in this. Um, and you know what? While I'm just babbling at you, um, feel free to let me know if you, by the end of this, you want to hear more and you want it to be more formal, more like a 101 class or something, um, even though there's nothing to learn. Uh, but if you want it more like in that format of like, okay, I'm going to formally do this now in sort of seminar form. Uh, I've been thinking about doing that. I don't know if I want to do it for this show. Um, I would like it to live for free on the internet. If I could work that out with Whitley, okay, um, for a known country or something. If not, you know, I'm willing to do it on my own. I just, um, let me know if you're interested in that by the end of this, if you're interested in that. So then, because I'm not going to do that long form thing now, I'll just say in brief. I had a number of understandings that led me to, what would you say, positively negate myself. So I would look at my own personal issues and I would try to peel away at them like layers of an onion. So instead of just feeling hurt by something, for instance, I would try to see why it is that I feel that hurt, like what it is about me that feels hurt about something specific over and over again, like a pattern of behavior. Um, like, let's just say it's a, you know, how you are with the opposite sex, or if you're, you know, gay or bisexual or whatever, with your own sex, you know, what, whatever you're attracted, whoever you're attracted to, <laughs> um, what, it, what are the repetitive toxic patterns of behavior? And why is that in your life? Why do you work that way? Not just allow it, but why are you that way? And if you, and that's just an example, you can take anything in your life and look at it and go, okay, why am I that way? And you look at why it hurts personally, but when you get down past there, you get to like, okay, but why do I react this way? Is it because, and you can go down the list, because I was bullied at school, because I saw how my parents were with each other, and they fought a lot, and they, so that formed, you know, these were my role models or the things that shocked me into, you know, behaving this way all the time. And then you break that down further, like, okay, if it's my parents, what do I know about my parents? You know, how were they raised? Why did they get into a relationship like this? What were my, what were my dad's parents like? What were my mom's parents like? What must it have been like to have been raised that way in their generation? Do I know anything about my great-grandparents? Like, what's it like to come over on a boat? You know, like, you just go down the list of things, and by the time you're done peeling them away, you're done peeling yourself away, you know, you're not just left with some sort of like psychological uh, purity, like all your problems are gone. You're, it's like that disconnection to humanity is erased too. Like you are now back in heart where you belong because you see deeply that, oh, there is no ending to this. These aren't actually my own personal problems. These hurts come up in my parents, in my grandparents, in their parents, 
and a bully who's you know abused by their parents, who suffered abuse by their parents, whatever it is, right? Like there's no going back for far enough until you realize this is humanity. This is what we do. It just is. And then suddenly you're not alone. <laughs> suddenly it's not you with a problem. The problem is all of us. It's what we are. And when you see it, when you have clarity about, clarity about it, just like anything else, the problem is no more. Now, when this happens to you, when it happened to me, you become a bright-eyed, giggly, happy person. And um, then everyone around you thinks you've had a mental breakdown, and you kind of have. <laughs> but just not in the way that they think of a mental breakdown. Um, but if you get stuck there, there's a problem. Because you are still you. There is still you there. It's just that you have been recontextualized. So yes, you're in more healthy inner organization uh, than you just were, and that feels like enlightenment because you don't know anything else and because you're feeling great and because you're understanding everyone and you have compassion. Not just passion for the few, but compassion, the all-encompassing passion for all. And that feels like enlightenment. Um, and this is what I kind of tried to say in the last episode, which is like, nature cultures, this isn't to put them on a pedestal or anything, it's just the truth. They don't have that full separate self-sense that we have, so they don't have to go through that. So, eh. <laughs> like, there is no big enlightening moment in that for them, right? Um, but for us, there is, and so we think we're enlightened, and so then we may make the mistake of then, like, going and being teachers or something, and that's where... You, you start to see, like, the real, like, the cult leaders who have had some sort of experience. You know, you always hear this, like, you can't deny their experience, but they're also crazy or depraved or something. Like, the toxicity of thinking you're enlightened, uh, having had an experience like that, or, or having become someone sort of different as a result of being healthy has its own, because we don't have a culture that embraces that and understands that, it's just the countdown to decay. <laughs> unless you're very careful, unless you really watch yourself. So in my case, uh, for a while I thought, uh, okay, um, I'm enlightened, like this must be it, but it doesn't feel like it. And after a while, you start to get like, this isn't it. There's still something, like I'm still... There's that feeling of, like, I'm still missing something. And um, this was when I was, uh, you know, all of this sort of came about through reading Jiddu Krishnamurti books. And who Jiddu Krishnamurti is and why I would be reading those books is a whole other bunch of stories. But just know, I'm reading Krishnamurti, who has said all of this, you know, in the most pure, rational way possible, which to my mind, originally was as angering and triggering as any hate watcher watching me uh, because it was antithetical to who I was, what he was saying. <laughs> uh, but once I sort of got it, I was like, okay. And then I did the positive negation stuff on me, <laughs> uh, which I don't think he necessarily said to do, but I just decided, okay, I'll take positive negation, which he was using in terms of there are certain things that are not um, that are not in the field of thought, such as beauty, love, truth, 
And so because they're not in the field of thought, you can't define them. You can only know them by negating what we consider to be truth, love. So you peel away the layers of our definitions of these things. And if such a thing exists, it will be the case. You will be that. I took that and sort of just did it on my own psychological baggage. Um, so one fine day, I'm sitting on the couch. I'm reading Judy Krishnamurti in my East Village apartment in New York. And uh, I just got that I'm that guy. I'm the guy now who is the book learn learned guy. The guy who is feeling like he's transcended something. Feeling like he, you know, whatever that is. I'm that guy who gets it intellectually, feels it, but isn't it because I'm still that guy. <laughs> I'm still searching. I'm still reading. I'm still, that is my way of not being truth is by being close enough to feel it, um, having some insights and stuff like that and, and reading about it and knowing it. I've become that guy. And once I got that, just that little bit, um, my sense of self was completely vanished. There was nothingness. And for that moment of nothingness, um, an energy rose from my spine or up my spine. My head started to spin around on its own like this, like an exercise. If you're not watching on YouTube and you're just hearing me, my head is spinning like doing an exercise. And, you know, and then I'm back and I'm, you know, in this, with this energy and of course, all I have in my upbringing to compare this to is like demon possession. Like, why would my body be moving and I'm not moving it? Oh, God, what have I gotten myself into? So I'm going to do the long story short here, folks. This is actually the long story short, believe it or not. There's a new world coming if we can take it. What does that mean? The first part of the message is if we can take it for ourselves on our own terms. The second part of the message is, can we bear the newness and the huge expansion of human consciousness that is going to be involved? Can we take it, a new world? It doesn't mince words. It tells the good the bad and the ugly like it is, and it leaves a message behind. Can you do this? Do you want to? Do we have an alternative? Right now, at this point in history, mankind is either going to get a lot bigger or not. I choose to go forward. I choose to live for and in the future, I choose the future, a new world. We can take it. Available in hardcover, softcover, audiobook, and Kindle. Um, after some time <laughs> of allowing this energy to maneuver, years or however long it was, um... It, it developed its, it, it started doing its own, it would do things to me. For instance, Tai Chi, 
what looks like Tai Chi, what looks like yoga, what look like whirling dervish twirls, what look like common exercises, what look like, uh, all, you know, get out a list of things it looks like. I think I talked about some of it in the last episode, some of the embarrassing stuff. It did that. It did a bunch of psychic awakening stuff. So it did this, all these movements. It also did psychic awakenings. There was a time of clairvoyance. There was a time of clair audio. There was a time of visions. There was a time when certain people out in the world started coming up to me and interacting with me in some sort of like straight out of a sci-fi movie way, uh, you know, to almost as if there is a secret society of these people or something or like secretly enlightened and, you know, they know that I know even though I don't know, you know, like that sort of thing. Um, and I just went through this. Like, I didn't want to stop at anything and be like, now I'm a psychic. Now I'm a shaman. Now I'm a... I wanted to know where this thing was going. So I never made the mistake of stopping to be any of these things, to be back in thought and in the known and in answers and safety, the comfort of answers. Um, I just let this play out. Uh, and eventually <laughs> there came three events that were not this energy, but were a different type of energy. So when I say that this energy rose up in my spine, it was just the, that initial time that the energy rose up in my spine ever since then. And, and until now, even, um, this energy is, is just, is me. It's perpetually there. And I used to think it was the body speaking its own language. Like I played with these ideas first. It was like, Oh God, I'm possessed. Help. Then it was, the body must have its own language of these healthy things, yoga and, and meditation and all of these sorts of things that I knew nothing about. Uh, it must just do this on its own when one is alive in this way. Somebody jotted it down long ago, said, here, some exercises. Here's yoga. This will get you to enlightenment, even though all of this came to me after the fact. Um... That must be what it is. The body speaks its own language and its own movements. And you can either let it happen naturally on its own, or you can, um, you know, like pay. <laughs> pay for somebody to teach you some stuff. Um, and while I do understand that the body has its own natural language, I still don't think that that answers it. That's not what this energy is, you know, the so-called what people call kundalini energy, although that's sort of been bastardized now. Six ways from Sunday. Um, uh, so, okay, all of this is to say that that energy rising that first time was just the once. Then it was perpetually, ever-presently the case. If I just shut up for a split second, it'll come active and do whatever healthy thing it needs to do. Um, but then there's another energy, which... I cannot just shut up and access. I've only experienced it three times. And all three times, the beginning of the experience is the same. And it feels as though there is a surgeon <laughs> doing a precise surgical, you know, cut, like a slit, like a gill or something opens up at the base of the spine. And this other energy comes beating in all up and down the backside from head to toe. And it feels like, although you're not, it feels like 
so palpable, like you're levitating on this beating energy, and it feels like complete bliss. Uh, and then, you know, and then it, it leaves the same way. It sort of swoops into the body, and then it washes back out, high tide, low tide, I don't know, and then the slit seals itself back up, and you can feel it. You know, there's a component to it where you can feel it opening and closing. And I don't want to move. When that happens, I don't want to move because I don't know if I'll screw something up. Like, it feels like that precise. Like, don't do anything. And if, like I said, I felt this three times. The first time was simply that, just the energy. The second time was a different event that we will not talk about because I don't want to get sidetracked. And the third time was... Uh, I guess it's important to note that I went to bed that entire week. I'd had a mysterious uh, hell of a headache. Not all the time, just at certain moments. Like this pounding, awful headache. Um, and that's important because you'll see. So I got to bed with this awful headache. But anyway, at some point I got up, I went to the bathroom, I came back to bed... By the time this event ended, it was six, like a little past six in the morning, because I jotted it down. I jumped out of bed and jotted it down. Uh, so it was around then that I got up, I'm assuming, went to the bathroom, went back to bed, rolled over on my, uh, on my left side, and, you know, shut my eyes to go back to sleep. And fairly immediately, there was like, it was bright behind my eyelids, as if, Someone had, like, shown a spotlight in the bedroom. But I didn't open my eyes. And I felt the slit open. And it felt this time, which it did not feel the first two times, as though there were people in the room with me. Like, I wasn't alone. There were, like, invisible people in the room with me. Like, surrounding me. Which wouldn't make any sense because my bed is against a wall. So they couldn't be surrounding me. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, if this were, like, a physical people in the room. But I'm just telling you what it felt like. Felt like that. Slit opens up, uh, beating energy washes in, and then washes out. And instead of the slit closing back out, my sense of existence, me, self, soul, whatever you want to call it, comes out with it. Uh, so I actually feel myself leaving the body through the slit, but then uh, there's nothing for however long that is, nothingness. There's just nothing. And then there's something. <laughs> that something is uh, like a, like a two-dimensional circle of water over black. It's not a circle of water, but it, it's clear. I mean, it's defined, but it's clear. So it's kind of like water, I guess is what I'm getting at, a circle that starts expanding in all directions over blackness. And now, because there's not nothingness, there is my sense of awareness in this. And so I am aware that I'm seeing this, and I'm aware of myself as that, and as it's stretching, I'm also, even though I just left my body presumably, aware of the feeling of it in my own head. Like it feels as though something in my brain is expanding and about to snap. And I'm thinking in that moment, like, oh God, I'm having an aneurysm. Like something's going to snap and I'm going to die. This is it. So I'm watching this, this clear circle expand over blackness. 
and it does snap. But in the snap, right, what would be the center of this is a tiny, you know, ball of light. And from that tiny ball of light, the entire universe comes into existence. And this is easy to say, but it's actually hard, probably hard to conceptualize. Now I'm, I am that universe. I'm aware of me as a, you know, I'm aware of that I'm in bed, but I'm also, I am the universe and I am each thing in the universe. So when I'm watching, for instance, rock jettisoning through space now, I am that rock. I am that space. I am the force of resistance. You know, I am all of these elements of the universe. And when I say that, I don't just mean that I feel as though I connect with them in the way one feels compassion for everybody and the interconnecting nature of all things, right? I'm talking about, I am seeing through the quote-unquote eyes from the perspective of each and every aspect of the universe all at once, which is really hard to explain how that's possible because we only got the two eyes, right? And the closest I can come to is like, unfortunately, like a common house fly has a segmented eye. <laughs> Picture like a bunch of cameras, <laughs> a bunch of little eyeballs forming one eye where you're seeing wholly out of each thing. Maybe like that. I don't know. That's as close as I can come. But that's what it is. I'm seeing all of this and I am all of this all at once. The I am. Also, what I am is spirit riding through all of this, riding through the toy box of its own mind is kind of the way I put it. And what that feels like is a smile on a wind. If you, like if you could do a cartoon of that, it would just be the blur of wind rushing through the universe at, you know, light speed or whatever speed with a smile on its face, like no face, just a smile. Just doing that, just going like on a roller coaster, going through, rushing through everything. Uh, and then, and so this became more and more. There were, you know, sort of like at some point, oh boy, I was um, a sun giving light unto the nearest rock that could take it. And then life comes up from that rock, from that, that earth and... Now I am, you know, I see the ocean and the trees and I am that ocean and I am those trees and the wind in the trees and the spirit riding on the ocean through the trees and all of it. Had this amazing experience. <laughs> and uh, at the end of it, my perception settled on this large, bright red planet that I'd be tempted to say is Mars, except... It, it's at least redder than uh, any of the pictures I've seen of Mars. But in any event, closes in, a, you know, the sort of the visual element of this, hones in on the planet. And I hear this female voice who I've heard in abductions, who I, I talked about in the last episode, say, do we humans not understand that other planets cannot help us if we continue to block them out and kill ourselves? And all the while, I'm hearing in the background, uh, like a chorus of voices, maybe, saying, um, oh God, I can't remember the book title exactly, but I think it was talking to extraterrestrials. Lizette Larkins talking to extraterrestrials over and over at high speed. Lizette Larkins talking to extraterrestrials. Lizette Larkins talking to extraterrestrials over and over and over in the background. So I'm hearing the alien voice woman 
<laughs> the alien woman voice. I'm hearing this book by this author who I had heard on Dreamland, actually. I've never read her stuff, and she didn't sound like anything I would care about. And at this point, me, just as my little tiny self in the background, is going, oh, God, I'm dying. Like, I've got I've to get back into my body somehow. So I concentrate on the headache because the body still has the headache. So I concentrate on the headache, as, which acts as the anchor point to this. So because I'm concentrating on the headache, which I assume is because I'm concentrating on the body, I come back into my body. And as I come back into my body, it's like I'm loosely climbing, you know, sort of or swimming or something up. Like I can see my bones. I can see my blood back. You know, it's kind of gross up into uh, my forehead or my, my head somewhere in here. Um, and when I reach there, the slit closes up and I jump out of bed <laughs> and I start pacing around like a caged animal. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, what do we, and I jot down what the woman said and I jot down the time and all of that. And then of course I call my dad to tell him what had just happened because I'm stupid. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I know my dad will want to know. And he's just like, Jerry, go back to sleep. You sound crazy. Um, but I can't remember exactly, maybe a couple of weeks later or something. Um, as I'm pondering this stuff and wondering, what does the Lizette Larkins thing have to do with it? What does this contactee message have to do with it? Because the message is pretty, you got to admit, that's pretty awful. <laughs> like, some of you are probably like, yes, Blackout Plants, Jeremy. Don't you see? They're telling you. Channel, channeling. And actually, that's kind of what I was thinking this is. Like, oh, God. Please tell me this isn't going to be some contactee, you must channel aliens thing. Um, but the Lizette Larkins thing, I think, I think I tried to get in contact with her first. Because at this point, I'm writing for UFO Magazine. And I think I told Nancy Burns at UFO Magazine about this. And uh, she had, or, or I asked her, do you have Lizette Larkins' contact information? And she gave it to me. And so... I wrote to Lizette Larkins. I told her all of this. And I said, do you have any memory of this? Because my thinking is like, wait, what if Lizette Larkins is that female voice? What if she's been involved this entire time in my life as this disincarnate voice that I've associated with visitors or aliens or whatever this is? What if that's her? Um, and so I wrote to her and told her all of this and she wrote back something like, well, I have no memory of that ever happening, but lots of people come to visit me out of body in the middle of the night or something. So maybe, who knows, keep hope alive. I, you know, something like that. And I was just like, eh, never mind. But then a funny thing happened. The learning annex in New York called and said, uh, hey, we heard that you're um, a public speaker or a teacher or something in, in uh, talk about aliens and, and all that. Could you teach a course for the learning annex? And I'm thinking like, where have you heard that? Cause I don't even think I was podcasting at this point. I mean, I had the column at UFO magazine, but I wasn't a public speaker by any stretch, but I was like, sure, I think I could do it. They're like, great. Because there's this uh, course uh, talking to extraterrestrials that used to be taught by Lizette something or rather out of Canada. And I was like, that wouldn't be Lizette Larkins by any chance, would it? And they were like, yeah, you've heard of her? And I'm like, yes, you're not going to believe this. And then I babbled in this woman's ear. <laughs> so 
to my mind, the bottom line of the Lizette Larkins thing is that this was a psychic prediction that happened in the middle of or at the end of this experience, because even though this experience is more real than real, it's more true than true. What, again, when you come back to time from timelessness, it's just a matter of time, baby, before the decay sets in and before the self creeps back up and the ghost of who you were, you know, sort of wants to cling to you and come back. Um, so I think that this was set up as like the undeniable reminder that this happened, uh, was the synchronicity, more than synchronicity, the psychic prediction of the learning annex calling me. <laughs> uh, I think that's what its function was. And I don't think that, um, I don't even necessarily know that that ending to this, um, was, uh, fully part of the experience or was, as Jeff Ritzman said, me coming back to myself and clinging on to something recognizable. Ooh, aliens. Ooh, Mars. You know, ooh, ooh this message. Like, this is me getting in the way of the purity of the experience as I'm coming back into myself or as I'm struggling to live. I think that is possible. But I also think it's possible that do we humans not understand that other planets cannot help us if we continue to block them out and kill ourselves doesn't refer to channeling aliens or blocking out aliens, but the planets themselves. Uh, and the reason I say that is because the one thing that felt qualitatively different in terms of consciousness of this I am experience, I am universe, whatever, was uh, being the sun or being a star. I don't know that it was our sun, but you know what I mean? Like a star. Being a star has an immense aloneness. Stars are sentient, they're conscious. This will be the most new agey thing I say, folks. <laughs> so enjoy. Stars are conscious. Uh, and they have an immense aloneness about them. They are solitary. They're almost gods. They almost are what we think of as gods, um, except that they don't last forever. But they are also... I don't know if psychic really hits it, but it's close enough. They are interlinked with each other. They all know about each other, and they're all working on the same whatever, the same issues, let's say. And being the sun, the sun is just happy to give light and life to the nearest rock that can handle it. That's what the sun does. So I think, uh, you know, planets... Blocking out planets. I mean, suns are alive. Planets are alive. Is there some bigger sense of the universe that we're blocking out? Certainly most of us are not living in our, you know, universal sense of consciousness. Um, I don't know. All of that is probably for another time. <laughs> That's the story, folks. Them, Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Vallée says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasulka author of American Cosmic says, leads the way and it's best that we listen 
because the stakes have never been higher. EarthTech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record, says, groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says, searing and masterful. Them. Available as an audiobook on audible.com, Apple Books, and Amazon. Available as a hardcover and paperback everywhere. Available as a Kindle on amazon.com. And you can go to unknowncountry.com and order all of my books. Where are we going? Where have we come from? What secrets have been buried? What secrets have been lost? What is the truth about the close encounter experience? You have never heard any of this before. Them. The thing that I uh, ignored in that for a while, for a long time, in fact, the book that I wrote about the spiritual stuff that's like purely the spiritual stuff with none of the snarky UFO stuff or anything that is called Urgency. And um, you can go buy it. <laughs> but I will, I have an audiobook version that I'll probably, uh, that's on my website that I'll probably release to the public for free. So if you have no money, <laughs> or you, you know, prefer audio, um, you can just wait for that to happen, I suppose. You don't really need to do either, honestly. But I did write about this stuff in there. And the thing that I neglected, or the people in the room, the sense of the people in the room, what I figured that was initially was um, that my consciousness was going haywire in some way, kind of like, is it Michael Persinger who did the God helmet, the so-called God helmet, you put this thing on and then suddenly start to feel like there are people in the room or sleep paralysis. You know, you have sleep paralysis and it feels like there are people in the room. Um, I was thinking it was something along those lines. Not, not that the whole experience was that, but that that piece of it was that, uh, was shifting into another sense of consciousness. Um, but what I think now, and here's where it becomes hypothetical, I suppose, uh, is that these were, uh, the beings that we call sometimes that we call visitors, sometimes that we call alien. <sighs> this is tough to get into because... I want to say I know this for a fact uh, in general, but in specific to my situation, I'm not certain that these were those beings. So it's hard for me to, I don't know where to start with this. Um, maybe I'll start with where this theory came from in the first place, what I'm about to tell you. I mean, what I tried to describe last time and what I am going to describe to you now is essentially that there are beings uh, who are not in our sense of time, who are not in our configuration of dimensions, but who are like conjoined twins with us in other dimensions that 
we also occupy, but we're blind to, right? Like we already know, I mean, the physics-y thing is like there are the, you know, few dimensions that we know and love. And then there are also these other dimensions, right? Like string theory. Well, what occupies those other dimensions? We do, <laughs> right? Like aspects of us are in those other dimensions. It comprises reality. But are there also other beings who are in those dimensions who are more uh, brought up in a different set of them to which we are blind? Does this make sense? And so that the, the knowing thyself as the entirety of the multidimensional nature of a person, of a being, of a living being, to know yourself as that, not as hypothetical, not as Eureka discovered it through science, but to actually be the being who lives and sees through all of those dimensions, um, does that take a certain wake-up period? I was going to say wake-up call, but does it take a certain wake-up? For that, not technology, but waking up. And are there beings in these other dimensions conjoined with you and I who are awake to that? And so as they're trying to wake us up, it's one waking oneself up, essentially, right? Um, is that what's going on here? Is that why it's so personal? Is that why they care at all? I mean, why would an alien care if we blew ourselves up? Um, but these beings might, and if you just think about that, how we see the world is perception. It's all, you know, various organisms perceiving is what creates the world, you know, essentially perception, thought, both of these, <laughs> uh, if you keep taking away different beings through extinctions <laughs> or through genocides or any of this, the world starts to get vaguer and vaguer. It starts to get smaller and smaller. It starts to get colorless, right? And what if they know themselves to be that, uh, the fullness of themselves, and they also know that we, as an appendage, because, as, you know, because we're not fully conscious, we are essentially acting as an appendage to them. Um, if we go, if we go extinct, for instance, a piece of them goes extinct. Um, do they know that and we don't? Does that make sense? So, and I don't know that to be the case. I just think it's, it's a hypothetical that came to me in an interesting way. It came to me, and again, I'm, I, I've got to talk about these books generally. I'm not trying to promote them. But I wrote about this in, originally, in I Am To Tell You This and I Am To Tell You It Is Fiction. And the reason I titled the book that is because, one, I don't know if it's true, but two, um, I have a sneaky suspicion that if it is true, it still has to be kept as fiction. It still, otherwise it becomes a myth. It becomes something that you believe in and start living by, and that's useless. Um, but basically, everything that's in that book, which then bleeds over into Aliens, the First and Final Disclosure, which I did try to promote to you in the last episode, um, that came to me all at once. It just popped into my head all at once. Like, how it works, how multidimensional stuff works, what other lives are, you know, what these beings 
how they function in it, how non-dual beings, timeless beings function in time, all of it. And it made sense to me. Uh, so could it have come from my own imagination or from the impersonal imagination? Uh, yeah, it could have. But to me, the point is that aliens aren't true. <laughs> and our normal sense of what it means to have interdimensional visitors isn't true, or time travelers isn't true, and that this in its totality makes more sense uh, to me, and maybe it doesn't to you. So, but at least it gets the conversation moving in a different way to where if this isn't true, maybe one of you will have the eureka moment of the thing that is. But we're not going to know that if we're stagnant. You know what I mean? So to me, the more important thing isn't that it's completely true so much as we start getting the movement going again of thinking outside the box, so to speak. But essentially, what the theory is, is this. That there are beings, again, who are conjoined with us, who need to speak with us to let us know about all of this. And again, they can't just tell us directly because you can't break the shell for the bird to come out or the bird doesn't live. So there is nothing that they can say that will wake us up. In our case, unlike the example of the bird, it just doesn't work anyway. It's not like it will break us. It would break us if they landed and pretended to be aliens and have handshake deals with our government and all that. That would... <laughs> That might break us. But just to sit down and have a heart-to-heart -heart spiritual talk or something, or a heart-to-heart -heart talk about wholeness or non-duality, um, that doesn't do anything for you. It can't. It has to come from you. You have to find your way out of yourself, right? You have to find your way to the place where the brain itself shuts down the seeker, sees that the seeking, the learning, the evolving is only a furtherance of the self, and you can't take you with you when you go. You've got to get over this fear of annihilation, the unknowable, and uh, that's it. End of story. And when once there's clarity on that, you're gone, because you're not clear. You're not clarity. You're ignorance and confusion. <laughs> uh, once you see what free will is, you'll never turn back. Um, so... But here's, here's the rub. The rub is that essentially what we call reality is comprised of thought. And let's say that the human mind, at least the human mind, is like a, its own reservoir. Its own... Um, I mean, I put it in terms of a pendulum. Like we swing back and forth on the pendulum between good and, good and evil... Um, but it's just the one pendulum. The things that we call good aren't really good. They're a substitute for the good. And the things that are evil aren't um, immutably, permanently, absolute evil. Um, they're just confusions and, and all of that, um, which I know sounds like Buddhism. Um, somebody said, and not a few people have said it, you know, I sound like Buddhism or Zen or whatever, and I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Zen person or whatever. If it sounds like Buddha and I are on the same page, great. I'm in good company. Um, but I think the ism, that which comes after <laughs> the experience or having the experience and then telling people about it, is garbage. Um, is causes further illusion. And 
this is the problem is that it's not just an illusion. Like there is the Buddha saying, I do like the saying of, if you see Buddha on the road to enlightenment, kill him, meaning that it's an illusion. And that's cute. Nah, ha, ha. But really what it's telling you is like, if you expect to see Buddha, you may just very well see Buddha. Like the universe conjures up Buddha, the mind, the collective human mind, full of all this thought stuff, these thought forms that are sort of parasitic and semi-alive, these archetypes, which then become personages, uh, come up before you as visions and spirits and ghosts and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, that's all within the reservoir of the human mind, and that's all the known. But what we're talking about is the unknown. We want the unknown to be in the realm of the known, which is why we keep answering what this is. It's aliens, it's interdimensional, it's eh. Um, but we have to keep it a mystery. Even if what I just told you about the, the nature of the interdimensionality is true, it still isn't true for you and me. So we have to keep it a hypothetical. You see what I'm saying? Like, even if it's true, to name it is to define it, is to build it up as sort of a tulpa, <laughs> as a thing that comes to you. Like suddenly, yeah, the phenomenon will change and now it'll be that. But it's not actually the phenomenon doing that. It's the universe doing that. This is where it's going to get really tricky, and I don't know that I can do this all in one little summation here, which is unfortunate. But I'm going to try. Um, myths are alive, sort of. They have qualities about them that are living. Like I, you know, and like I said, archetypes and all that have these sort of qualities about them. Um, but they're not the actual. They're still thought constructs. They're thought forms that have taken on a life of their own through collective agreement. And the universe does this, and you are the universe, because the universe wants to keep you here, and you want to remain here. So the universe will allow, <laughs> the universe, which is highly comprised of time, folks, will allow you to experience the timeless, cast you out and reel you back in. That's how novelty happens in the universe, through that. And then once it takes those novel experiences, through you having had them and talking about them and sharing them and other people building, this is how the universe builds itself up in these other you know, ways. You can call it the underbelly of the universe, the underworld, whatever it is, the archetypal. I mean, all of these sorts of realms um, are both real and unreal. They're real. They're real enough. They're real to you and me when we experience them. Uh, but they're not truth. They're not that other reservoir. They're not of the absolute. They're not of timelessness. They're not non-duality, right? They're the known. And even though, you know, just like you and I are the known and, and we have lives of our own, and yet we're illusions. <laughs> so it is with these archetypes. And add to that the alien, which is, you know, our latest strain of that. So the universe may send you an alien, <laughs> folks, may send you a UFO, may send you something like that, if you're highly interested, if you know how to really deeply in the, maybe even in the Jungian way of shutting off the, the shallow sense of self for that deep, you know, inner seeker self, 
you may find that which you seek, and then you mistake that for the real, which is exactly what the universe wants you to do, to keep you here, to keep you not transcending and including the universe. Why would the universe want that? The universe wants to remain relevant after all, which is the same thing as saying you want to remain relevant, right? Like all of these, you are reflections of each other. The only way to know the difference between the real and the unreal is that the unreal will tell you things or show you things that, yes, keep you going down the rabbit hole and rabbit hole and rabbit hole, chasing and chasing and chasing. But also, uh, especially nowadays, in, in the way that we tend to see ourselves and as future forward thinkers and all of this, um, do things and say things to further your evolution, right? So you will hear things, you know, you ask anyone who supposedly is a channeler, or has an abduction experience um, that is like a positive experience, let's say, <laughs> uh, or talks to Mother Mary, you know, or any of these sorts of things, the messages are always about you. They're always about furthering you. Uh, you're the center of attention. Lucky you. Whereas I think the real beings of non-duality, if you want to call or beings who are outside of the universe looking in, know that not to do that. <laughs> they know we're going to do that with, likely, we're likely to do that with whatever it is that they present because we immediately want an answer. And so when the scary other comes at us, you know, we go, ah, God, we got to answer this. We got to make the unknown known. Uh, and then we can do something about it or we can embrace it and love it. Um, but to cut back as much as possible on the odds of that happening, I think that they don't do messages that are about your own evolution. Um, because they must know what I'm telling you, <laughs> what I know from experience, which is that nothingness needs to be the case. Silence needs to be the case. Clarity needs to be the case for truth to be the case. You can't be blocking it out with all of this evolution. You can't be adding on to you. You can't be, you know, the light worker or the spirit warrior. Um, if you're fighting evil or you're actively doing good on behalf of, you know, doing something against the negative, you're stuck on the pendulum going back and forth. That's all the illusion. Um, it's a functional illusion. It's one that entire cultures dedicate themselves to, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, but an illusion nonetheless. And that's all well and good, but we're not concerned with that in this talk, right? Like, it's not a judgment against that, like, oh, that's lesser than. It's just simply like, what is the truthiest truth of them all? <laughs> and I think the truthiest truth of them all is that there is the reservoir of the absolute uh, that if it is that we can't touch, we can't speak to it. There's nothing, and it, nothing that we can, we have, we're the problem in the way of it flowing through and as us. And so because we're a blockage in the way, it can speak to us. And when it speaks to us, it speaks to us generally through these 
means, the archetypal means that we're talking about, or whatever it is that we can understand. Uh, and then hope that one or two people get it. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just it. And so this brings me back to the people in the room. Why would there be a sense of people in the room in a non-dual experience? That was always my, my sort of question to myself, is like, that's why it must be like sleep paralysis stuff or Michael Persinger's God Helmet type stuff. Um, because why would there be people? This is a oneness experience. Why would there be two? Why would there be multiples? Um, because of just that, that, that the oneness and the two-ness, yeah, ultimately everything is one energy, but there is the breakdown of that into various components. And one component is the oneness um, of universal consciousness, but then there's also a oneness of multiversal consciousness. And there are beings in this multiversal consciousness who are, who are us and not us at the same time. We share the same dimensional space, but these dimensions are invisible to us. But we're not invisible to them because they've already woken up, right? So uh, how many of these beings there would be? I don't know. How many of these dimensions have, you know, do they even all have planets the same way we do and all of that? Not for this discussion, I suppose. So just for clarity, what I'm saying about thought and archetypes and all of that, uh, I think these are facts that if I had more time, I would be flushing out. But maybe you'll just have to ponder it on your own to see why that's the case. Or if you're going to argue that it isn't, to know why what you're arguing. Uh, on the other hand, don't take my word for it. You can't, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying take my word for it, but um, obviously, ultimately, like I said, I could be crazy. I could be lying. Eh. But I'll just tell you, in my own head, this is the fact. And the hypothesis about what, what the UFO phenomena represents as being a part of that fact, being on the other side of thought, um, that is a hypothesis, partly based on my own experience and in thinking about that and partly because it just came to me all at once and like when does that that never happens except unless it was like handed to me like here you go um you get it now do what thou wilt and now i have a hard time not seeing it everywhere <laughs> everywhere i turn in ufology um in people's experiences uh in seeing the difference between sort of the puppet alien archetype being used by an invisible hand and uh, the archetypal puppet being used by the universe. And it does seem to me again that the difference is very clear. One tells you wake up, the other one tells you evolve. Um, one helps you, one ushers you into waking up if you can, if you're at that point. Because again, this started with the slit and the energy and the whole thing. That's not something that, unlike the Kundalini energy, that's not something that I can just become silence for a moment and then it rises and or whatever comes alive and does its stuff. Um, someone else activated non-duality in me. And there seemed to be multiple people in the room on that occasion of this ultimate I am experience. There wasn't just me. 
who else would that be? I don't know. Uh, but I haven't heard any other, um, and I probably won't here as a result of this, anything more likely than what I'm describing to you, I don't think. Because people are going to be like, angels, demons. It's like, oh God, can we get over this? Can we please get over this? But it's hard to get over this because those things are there, right? I guess this is my point, is like, I'm not denying that you will, in your life, maybe have, you know, you'll have trickster phenomena, you'll have things that seem demonic, things that seem angelic, you may have visions of these things, and they're real in that they're happening, but they're not real in that they're not going to tell you anything about you that you don't already know. They're just going to lead you to more experiences. They're not going to lead you to silence. Only you can understand this and be that silence or not be that silence, if that makes sense. And if this doesn't jive, again, with things that you may know through your reading of non-duality or whatever, I don't care. Uh, that's all the book learning. This is the point where book learning stops and we have to like be with ourselves. Not because I'm arrogant and I tell you so. If you think I'm a narcissist, great, ignore me. A, a, a kajillion people have told you this. <laughs> I'm just the latest guy who's doing it while, you know, giggling. Um, but the serious people have told you this too. And what have you done with it? What have you become? Defensive? Um, more shell? So we need to keep hearing this over and over and over again until it somehow, some way, through some voice breaks through. Uh, and then we're speaking it. Not because we're trying to sell a product. <laughs> Not because we're, you know, masters of something that has no mastery to it. Um, but because it is, it is deeply our nature. And so... You know, if nothing else, also, let's just take this away from this. The seeing and being the universe through all those different quote-unquote eyes is so fantastical that to hear people say, like, uh, we're, we're so limited in what we can do because of the meat that we're comprised of, our brains can only do so much or whatever, is not true. Like, the brain and the meat and all of that of us, the organism, is part of the joke it's part of it's part of the illusion i mean essentially what everything is nothingness is consciousness per se consciousness per se in simply being has to be different than consciousness per se it has to be something it has to be it's being all things so all things that can be expressed will be expressed uh or, or are being expressed right now um, and in this universe, if there be laws of physics, that means that certain things don't need to be expressed uh, so much in the physical as they can in our imagination, where anything goes. Um, if you'll indulge me this, let me just hit on just two more topics here. I know I'm, I'm outstaying my welcome on this, but um, one thing is hallucinogens, the psychonaut trip and all of that. Um, I did shrooms many years later after that experience, many years later, for Paratopia, Jeff Ritzman and I, who had also never, neither of us had ever done hallucinogens. I never even smoked pot in college. I never even drank. I mean, I've had 
sips of alcohol and but like I drank a something strawberry daiquiri or something when I turned 21 just to the rite of passage but I, I never drank I didn't like the taste of alcohol I never did drugs I didn't like how people were on them and I certainly didn't want to block out reality with what's up man like that just never appealed to me uh so and also because I was an experiencer to be honest with you crazy enough and so I didn't want people to be able to say to me oh you just did drugs however after talking to Dennis McKenna and Graham Hancock uh, on Peritopia and Jeff Ritzman playing a lot of Terrence McKenna to me, we decided, okay, we'll do shrooms. And so I did uh, How You Say the Hero's Dose. This was my first foray into drugs. It was like this much mushroomed. Jeff did not do that much by any stretch. Um, what I will say about it, just briefly, is that I am glad I had this so-called enlightenment experience, or I am experienced beforehand, uh, to know what you can't know if you've never had that experience, which is that these are not the same thing. Drugs are not spiritual. Uh, they may help you psychologically. They're not bringing you anywhere except into that toy box of the mind, the universe. Uh, you know, maybe you can talk to like dead relatives or, you know, uh, aliens or something. Like, who knows? But these are all within the universe. They're not truth. They're all part of the evolution, which is why these are not better people. <laughs> when they come back from the trip, they may feel pretty good, and they're like, but you can still be a douche, right? Like, <laughs> pardon my language. Uh, so, <laughs> but no, but more to the point, like, the actual trip, my actual experience of it, which was like, constant stuff happening and completely different with my eyes open than with my eyes closed different experiences but both the same in that it's tickle torture versus a good joke this is the way i describe it like uh the spiritual the authentic truth stuff uh is like understanding a good joke versus somebody tickling your armpit with a feather and drugs are someone tickling your armpit with a feather in both instances you're laughing but one of them is torture, and it's like someone else is doing it, and you can't stop it. And the other one is comes from understanding and from the broadening of your worldview to understand what all the references of a joke are. You see the difference? So it's not the same, but because they're both ticklish, it, it, they can be confused if you've never experienced one but only experienced the other. So that's what I would say about that for anyone who's probably going to jump in and be like, it's just a DMT dump in your head, man. Like we always want to just like, just, I don't know why we do this. We, we just, well, I do know why we want to do this. We want to make everything known. We want everything to be not just answered, but answered by me. So that way I don't have to deal with actually what's being said. I can just say, oh, I know what that is and go on. And I'm saying all of this flippantly because this is what we do. Like, we all do this at different points in our lives, right? I mean, it, we're just goofs. <laughs> that's the bottom line. Good night, everybody. Um, that's one point. I guess the other is that, you know, in, in my little theory here of interdimensionality, the beings who are outside of time are looking at what we consider to be unfolding as our lives is already all, always already the case 
as I said, the only thing that's novel comes from outside of time. So the only way out of this matrix is uh, through silence, is to not be the noise of this life, is to not be the psychological I construct who takes from the past, modifies it, and brings it forward into the future and calls that new. It's just the past with some touch-ups. It's not new. It's the known over and over and over again. Um, which is why all the human stories are the same stories over and over and over again, just with better special effects. But if you're a being looking at that living picture and let's say, uh, how's this going to look in the camera? Okay, the left of the picture uh, going from left to right, we see that as our lives in an arrow um, or we see um, history as an arrow, or maybe we see it as cyclical, but still kind of moving like a spiral. They see all of that hap is perpetually happening at once, like a picture, it's a moving picture. And so they can inject themselves, whether there's past lives or not, whether there's you, I mean, you experiencing a past life is just simply you experiencing another detail on the picture that is you, right? So they can look at that and they can inject themselves anywhere they need to, to try to wake you up. And then once you're up, you're up, you're out of the picture. And then you too can see the picture and go, hmm. The ability to leave the picture, <laughs> to leave time, to be, be timeless, is your one true free will act. That's it, everything else all of this good, bad decision-making stuff is part of the illusion, is the lie. And it's you. You are that. And so it's tempting to remain that. It's tempting to stay with that. And so if you die, uh, you still are there. You're in the, okay, great. You're in the underbelly of the universe. You're experiencing that. You're experiencing being whatever that is, a spirit roaming the earth, an ancestor, someone who goes to heaven, whatever it is you're going to experience um, whatever other thought construct you have moved your thought construct into, right? Now detached, now you, you know, the great wake up, I suppose, is that you realize you're detached from the body. But you're still, you're still known, knowable, and of the universe. And it ain't enough. It's different, <laughs> but it ain't enough. Because ultimately, from the pullback perspective, you're still there. The underbelly of the universe is here, and uh, the universe is here, and your past life is here, and your current life and your future life are all one picture. And the only way out of the picture is nothingness, is silence, which is another word of uh, another way of saying truth, which is another way of saying consciousness per se, that which is deeply you not just as in theory, but as your self-awareness. This doesn't take evolution. This doesn't take time. This takes just an immediate awakening to that which transcends and includes everything. That being, that spirit riding on the wind, whatever that is, um, it's not enough to say that we are all already that because we're all already one. We're one energy expressing as all these things. Great. The thing that you need to do, should you choose to accept it, is be the self-awareness 
of that. You are already that. The body is already that. Time is already transcended and included within the timeless. Duality is transcended and included within non-duality. But the thing that you're actually blocking out is the self-awareness. Is you as that. In your being. As your being. So that time and timelessness merge as one. The body is of time. The organism is moving through time. Timelessness is the sentience moving the vessel. And this is where I've hit a wall because it is impossible to talk about all this stuff in one sitting and have any sort of real focus. Uh, It's like, it's like Medusa's tentacles all going out in all these directions and you're kind of fascinated looking at her, but slowly you're turning into stone (laughs) because it's a lot. It's heavy. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Uh, So maybe for my own peace of mind, just in saying this in the way that I feel it needs to be said, um, I will do a series. Whether that takes place in an unknown country, I don't know. But let me know if you'd be interested. It would be free. Part of me is tempted to try to do it through Dreamland because it's such a large audience. But the other part of me is like, well... Why don't you just make people write a five-paragraph essay of why they want to do this (laughs) and then pick amongst them like a college might because that way you don't have to deal with, you know, trolls and all of that to, to like, get to the actual questions that people might have. Um, Because who wants to wade through that? But the problem is so many of you have responded positively to this that I think that there are of the, you know, tens of thousands of Dreamland listeners... Uh, probably tens of thousands of people who do want to hear this. So even if I have to hear from a hundred trolls and all capping me over and over and over again and post after post, uh, maybe it is worth doing this way. I don't know, but you tell me. Also tell me if you like this microphone better than the other microphone. Um, I think I used my normal microphone in the last one. And this is a different one. So let me know what you think, um, if you care, uh, because this one is much easier to deal with. I think that's it for now. I just, um, I don't know, food for thought, I suppose. Um, But contemplate pretty please with sugar on top how this is all important, because if anything I'm telling you here is true, then you should at least be getting the sense that we're not exactly the pinnacle of human nature. We just sort of said we are. And it's not through evolution that we're going to become the pinnacle. It's not through time. It's actually through puncturing time. It's actually through timelessness uh, that we're going to mutate, as it were, transcend and include uh, what we are now. Transcend meaning you know, we will be broader and more whole and, and, but we will include the parts of course, of who we are right now that are healthy, but we will get rid of the, the disease portion of the program. I mean, I suppose there there may always be some self to interact with here. Um, but does it need to be, you know, motivated by unconscious psychological baggage? Or can it be motivated by truth? Um, can it actually be truth? 
spoiler alert, it can and it must. And if we're ever going to talk about, in any honest way, what the enigmatic other is, whether you want to call it alien or, you know, I hope you don't anymore, but if we're ever going to talk about that, or ghosts, or Bigfoot for that matter, or any of it, we have to know who and what we are first. And then maybe some of those questions become clear all on their own, just as we've become clear through the magic of not polluting ourselves with our own knowledge. All right. I'll see you when next I see you. And you'll probably hate me again because of the guest. <laughs> Till then, surprise. Boo! And you thought we were done. Well, we are done. But subscribers are going to get an extra hour of Q&A stuff that fleshes this out, goes even deeper. So I just wanted you to be aware of that. It's a reason, even though you've listened to this whole show, to go subscribe. Because you're going to get, like, around another hour of this. Like, this area here, the mouth area, uh, doing, you know, the babble-dabble. But in a more concise and direct way, not uh, so loosey-goosey. So, uh, your choice. I just wanted you to be aware. The conversation continues for subscribers as I answer some of their questions from a previous episode. All right. Hope to see you on unknowncountry.com. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by unknowncountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.